Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. This is Democracy Now! I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. British Prime Minister Liz Truss resigns after a disastrous 45 days in office. A new Conservative Prime Minister could be picked by next week, but opposition parties are calling for an immediate general election. We'll go to the UK to speak with George Mambio. Then we look at the upcoming UN Climate Summit in Egypt. Inside the climate justice movement, we often talk about needing to build a politic that does not create sacrifice zones, places and people who get trampled in the name of getting a law passed or a deal done. Yet many Egyptians today tell us that they feel they have become the new sacrifice zone, that their imprisoned loved ones are being sacrificed in the name of these negotiations. We'll speak with Naomi Klein and Sana Seif, the sister of Ala Abdel Fattah, Egypt's highest-profile political prisoner, Sana and her sister Mona have been staging a sit-in in London in front of the British Foreign Affairs Office, seeking Britain's help to secure Ala's release. He is a Egyptian British citizen. Then we go to Florida to speak to law professor Kimberly Crenshaw and civil rights attorney Barbara Arnwine. They're on a 26-city ARCA voter justice bus tour to increase voter registration and turnout ahead of the midterm elections. We're going to the lowest turnout districts in the cities, in the counties, in the parishes, in the townships. And we're saying, vote! All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Britain's Labour Party is pushing for an immediate general election in the United Kingdom a day after Prime Minister Liz Truss announced her resignation less than seven weeks into her term. During her tenure as Britain's shortest reigning prime minister, Truss saw the value of the pound plummet while she pushed for sweeping tax cuts on the rich. Truss announced her resignation outside 10 Downing Street Thursday. Leadership election to be completed within the next week. This will ensure that we remain on a path to deliver our fiscal plans and maintain our country's economic stability and national security. I will remain as Prime Minister until a successor has been chosen. Leading candidates to replace Truss include former Chancellor Rishi Sunak, House of Commons leader Penny Mordaunt, and even disgraced former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who Truss replaced. After headlines, we'll go to the UK to speak with the author and activist George Mambio. 
In Chad, security forces shot and killed dozens of anti-government protesters Thursday in the country's two largest cities. Some 50 people were killed, hundreds injured. Protesters were demanding an end to transitional military rule and a return to democracy. Chad's been mired in a protracted political crisis following the death of former President Idris Deby, who was killed in the battlefield in April of last year. This all comes as Chad declared a state of emergency over catastrophic flooding that's demolished crops and livestock worsening food insecurity in the region. We subsist on selling milk to the surrounding population, but now there is not even enough to eat. Last year, we saw our cows starve to death before our eyes. This year, we are facing another disaster. The U.N. says five and a half million people in Chad are in need of emergency humanitarian aid. In Sudan, more than 150 people have been killed, scores more injured during two days of fighting in the southern state of Blue Nile. It's the latest in a series of clashes between the House of People and rival groups in southern Sudan that have left hundreds of people dead this year while driving tens of thousands from their homes. Ukraine faces a worsening energy crisis after a series of Russian attacks on critical infrastructure brought nationwide shortages of power and heat. On Thursday, authorities began limiting supplies of electricity between 7 a.m. and 11 p.m. Officials say one-third of Ukraine's power stations have been recently hit by missile and drone attacks. In Washington, State Department spokesperson Ned Price Thursday cited abundant evidence that Iranian military trainers are helping Russian forces carry out drone strikes. We assess that Iranian personnel, Iranian military personnel, were on the ground in Crimea and assisted Russia in these operations. Uh, Russia has received dozens of these UAVs so far and will likely continue to receive additional shipments uh, in the future. We're concerned that Russia may also seek to acquire advanced conventional weapons from Iran. Russian officials say Ukrainian forces firing U.S.-made HIMARS rockets killed six people and injured 10 others in the eastern Luhansk region earlier today. Meanwhile, in southern Ukraine, Russia says four civilians were killed, 13 others injured, in missile attacks in the occupied city of Kherson. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky accused Russia of mining a massive hydroelectric dam upstream from Kherson with explosives and is calling for international monitors to ensure Ensure the security of the site. Ukraine's warned a breach of the dam could lead to catastrophic flooding downstream, impacting hundreds of thousands of people. It could also disrupt critical cooling systems at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which relies on water from a reservoir created by the hydroelectric dam. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces shot and killed a Palestinian teenager during a raid on the northern city of Jenin. Salah al-Baraiki was 19 years old. Three other Palestinians were injured. Here in the United States, the ACLU is asking the Supreme Court to overturn an Arkansas law that penalizes people who engage in boycott, divestment and sanctions or BDS support. BDS seeks to boycott Israel and Israeli goods to protest its violation of Palestinian rights. The ACLU says Arkansas's anti-BDS law violates the right to free speech. In Pakistan, former Prime Minister Imran Khan has been disqualified from holding office for five years. Pakistan's election commission accused Khan of corrupt practices for the resale of gifts he received while in power. Khan's party rejected the ruling and called on supporters to take to the streets. He was removed from power in April after a parliamentary vote of no confidence. Khan described the move as a form of U.S.-backed regime change. 
Here in the United States, two attempts to block President Biden's student loan debt relief plan were shut down Thursday. A federal judge in Missouri rejected a case brought by six Republican-led states that argued Biden overstepped his authority by bypassing Congress. Separately, Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett denied a challenge to the plan brought by a right-wing advocacy group. The Biden administration started accepting applications this week for up to $20,000 of individual relief for federal students student loans. A federal appeals court said Thursday South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham must testify before a Georgia grand jury that's probing attempts by former President Trump and his allies to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Fulton County prosecutors subpoenaed Senator Graham to testify about two calls he placed just after the 2020 election to Brad Raffensperger, Georgia's Republican secretary of state. Raffensperger told reporters after the calls, Graham had hinted he should throw away ballots from areas where Joe Biden likely got more votes. In the Pacific Northwest, large wildfires in Oregon and Washington state have sent up massive plumes of smoke that brought some of the world's worst air quality to cities in the region. On Thursday, Seattle residents were warned to shutter windows, avoid exercise, and caution to wear masks outdoors. Portland and other cities issued similar warnings about unhealthy air quality. This is Brian Harvey, professor of forest sciences at University of Washington. As the climate continues to warm, we are going to see a lengthening of the fire season, and that's been shown in many regions around the globe. The Environmental Protection Agency is launching a civil rights investigation into whether the state of Mississippi discriminated against the majority black residents of Jackson when it refused to use federal funds to address the city's dangerous water crisis. The EPA said Thursday it's probing Mississippi's Department of Health and Department of Environmental Quality over its role in the crisis that left tens of thousands of mostly black households without drinking water. The main water treatment plant in Jackson was down damaged after torrential rains and flooding in late August. Some viral videos show undrinkable brown liquid coming out of taps. In California, Los Angeles jury found former UCLA gynecologist James Heaps guilty of sexually abusing his patients. Hundreds of women have accused Heaps of sexual assault. In May, the University of California agreed to pay out a record $700 million to the survivors. Heaps now faces up to 28 years in prison when he is sentenced next month. And in labor news, a tentative agreement has been reached between thousands of unionized mental health care workers and Kaiser Permanente, the U.S.'s largest nonprofit health care organization, ending a two-month strike. The National Union of Healthcare Workers had been denouncing chronic staff shortages at Kaiser, forcing patients to wait months for an appointment. The strike began in August, led by thousands of workers in California. Kaiser Healthcare workers in Hawaii, Oregon, and Washington State later joined. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Britain, where Liz Truss has resigned as prime minister after just 45 days in office. During her time in office, the pound plummeted in value after she pushed for sweeping tax cuts on the rich. Truss announced a resignation outside 10 Downing Street Thursday. I was elected by the Conservative Party with a mandate to change this. We delivered on energy bills and on cutting national insurance. And we set out a vision for a low-tax, high-growth economy 
that would take advantage of the freedoms of Brexit. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. Truss is the shortest-serving prime minister in the history of the United Kingdom. The Conservative Party is aiming to pick a new prime minister within a week. Many analysts say the leading candidates to replace Truss include the former chancellor, Rishi Sunak, the House of Commons leader, Penny Mordaunt, and former prime minister, Boris Johnson who Truss replaced. Meanwhile, the Labour Party and other opposition parties are pushing for an immediate general election. We're joined now by George Mambio, the author, activist and Guardian columnist. His recent piece is headlined, I'm part of the anti-growth coalition Liz Truss loves to hate and I'm proud of it. His latest book, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. George, welcome back to Democracy Now! Talk about what just happened. that she had to go. What happened was that Liz Truss um, applied pure neoliberal theory in the expectation that it would act as a kind of magic dust which would create massive growth and prosperity in this country, just as neoliberal theory predicted. Her policies were shaped by opaquely funded lobby groups, the Institute of Economic Affairs, the Taxpayers Alliance, the Adam Smith Institute, um, Centre for Policy Studies, all, all of which boasted on September the 23rd, when her mini budget was published, that they'd got exactly what they wanted and that they themselves were the authors of those policies. Clearly, they're now trying to distance themselves. And, and what they've been trying to do throughout their existence is to sweep away taxes on the rich, to sweep away regulations, to sweep away trade unions, to sweep away protest and other fundamental civic rights and create what they think of as a pure market economy, which really means allowing the rich to overwhelm democracy. It means plutocracy rather than democracy. Now, in, in the past, successive prime ministers have had similar agendas, but they've also had to temper them slightly because they have some more or less realistic appreciation of what the public might be able to tolerate. But Liz Truss, her great failing from the point of view of being a politician was she's completely unable to read people. She seems to have no social antennae at all and no concept of what she might be doing to other people. I, I believe she's entirely devoid of empathy. And and so she didn't try to disguise her agenda. She didn't try to wrap it up in platitudes. She just forced it through. And interestingly, for someone who believes that the markets should have the final word on everything, the markets had the final word on Liz Truss because she tanked the economy. So now talk about what's going to happen. The speculation that Boris Johnson could actually replace her, he's just returned from holiday. Talk about Rishi Sunak and the others and uh, whether yeah. there are differences between them. It, it's a quite extraordinary thing in this country that you know we can have a new prime minister without it ever being put to the people. 
um, without any of their policies being approved by the people. The only people who get a vote on this are members of the Conservative Party, believed to be about 160,000 of them, a majority of whom, a small majority of whom voted for Liz Truss. So that's 0.1% of our population. And any one of these completely discredited characters could be brought back in as our prime minister without any of us having a say over it. And this horrifying prospect that Boris Johnson, like Berlusconi or Netanyahu, this ghost who constantly haunts our politics, this bad memory we try to put behind us but just keeps coming back, that he could once again be our prime minister, having presided over a disaster even greater than those which Liz Truss caused. His uh, completely useless COVID policies killed tens of thousands of people who would otherwise have been alive. He lied and he lied and he lied about everything. I mean, he's a pathological liar. And while the rest of us were locked down and trying our best to ensure that the infection wasn't spreading, he was having party after party in Downing Street. And basically, the law is for the little people, not for me. And so he is the first prime minister we've ever had who received a criminal sanction while in office. As prime minister, he acquired a criminal record when he was fined for just one of those parties, which incidentally, he lied about repeatedly in parliament as well. They want to bring this man back? I mean, it shows just how totally corrupt, intellectually bankrupt, morally bankrupt the Conservative Party has become. And explain who Rishi Sunak is, the person who lost out to Liz Truss, uh, the uh, former chancellor. Yeah. So he is the richest member of parliament in the United Kingdom. Um, uh, his net worth, with along with his wife's, who inherited this huge fortune um, amounts to hundreds of millions of dollars. He's got homes all over the country, um, including a giant home in the poshest part of London, entirely reserved for visitors so that they can put up their guests in this home in, in a country which has got a massive housing crisis. He too was fined um, over um, illegal parties um, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, in other words, the Treasury Secretary in the United Kingdom. And he also seems to have no concept of how people live, no concept of what it is to be pushed towards destitution as millions in this country are being pushed. And you know, he's another candidate of the ultra-rich. He, he is himself ultra-rich and he represents the ultra-rich. He does not represent the people of this nation. And the possibility that there would be a general election. And what about the Labour Party's Keir Starmer? Um, mm. Though it is called the Labour Party, he recently told Labour politicians not to join the recent railway workers picket line. Yes, in fact, he sacked one of his own shadow cabinet um, members uh, for attending a, a, um, a, a strike, uh, which is severing the Labour Party from its roots, which were in the Labour movement, as the name suggests. So um, it, you would think that we would have a general election after all this chaos, after, well, we're going to now have our third prime minister since the last general election. But that's not how it works in this country, because we are a democracy in name only. And um, we, uh, the only two ways in which we could get a general election would be if the government were to call one, and given that it's about 50 points behind in the polls, that seems unlikely, 
or if there's a no confidence vote in the government passed in the House of Commons, but given that they have an 80 seat majority, that too seems unlikely. So the merry-go-round begins again. And, you know, the really terrifying thing is not so much who's in charge, but what they're able to pass in terms of legislation while they are prime minister. And something which has scarcely been reported in the press here. I mean, it's just it, it beggars belief that we're not all screaming about this was the public order bill, which was passed through the House of Commons just a few days ago by the Home Secretary the day before she was pushed out of office, like all Tory casualised well, workers in, 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 our, in our Tory economy. As soon as she'd done, done the business, she was chucked out. And this public order bill is the most repressive legislation ever experienced in the UK in the modern era and potentially the most oppressive legislation in any OECD member in recent times. If you have protested in the previous five years, you can be forced to wear an electronic tag and to have your home fitted with monitoring equipment. You can be forced to report to the police as and when they choose. You can be forced to stay at home. You can be forced not to go to certain places. You are no longer to associate with, with um, friends of yours. You're no longer allowed to attend any protest or indeed to talk about attending a protest or encourage anyone else to attend a protest. Uh, this is just one of the astonishingly draconian measures which has been pushed through um, right under the radar uh, just before the trust government collapsed. Finally, George Mambiot, I wanted to ask about your recent column in The Guardian titled, Do We Really Care More About Van Gogh's Sunflowers Than Real Ones? You write about the two climate activists who recently threw cans of tomato soup onto Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers painting at the London National Gallery to call out the UK government's role in fueling the climate catastrophe. Your final thoughts? Yeah, so you know, this is desperation. Young people are absolutely desperate. What does it take to be heard about this? What does it take to point out that Earth systems are collapsing? And people have expressed utter horror about this soup throwing, which incidentally did no damage at all to the painting as the activist calculated because it was protected by a perspex shield. Um, but much less horror about the prospect of losing the habitable planet. And I, I think, well, you know, I greatly value art and we should protect it, but I don't understand why we're not protecting the planet um, but, by, but with the same criteria, why we're not applying the same standards of protection to life on Earth. George Mambio, we want to thank you for being with us, author, activist and Guardian columnist. We'll link to your columns at democracynow.org, speaking to us from Devon, England. Next up, we look at the upcoming U.N. climate summit in Egypt. But we're going to stay in Britain. Um, we're going to speak with Naomi Klein, who's in British Columbia, and Sana Saif, the sister of Ala Abdel Fattah, Egypt's highest profile political prisoner. Um, Sana and her sister Mona are staging a sit-in in London to seek Britain's help in securing Allah's release. Stay with us.
Trust It by Public Enemy. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The next U.N. Climate Summit begins in just over two weeks, November 6, in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. A broad coalition has appealed to the military dictatorship of Abdel Fattah el-Sisi to allow participation of civic and environmental groups and for the release of Egypt's many political prisoners, including the human rights activist Allah Abdel Fattah. He's one of Egypt's high-profile political prisoners, rose to prominence during Egypt's 2011 uprising. We're here to say that the revolution must continue. You know that there's still injustice. The revolution is great and has achieved a lot of big things because of all of our effort. But as you know, injustice is still right. Allah has uh, been in prison for most of the last decade. Uh, he is now serving a five-year prison sentence, convicted of, quote, undermining national security. Um, yes, in prison for most of the past decade for his activism. He's been on a hunger strike now for over 200 days. Earlier this week, his sisters, Sana and Mona Saif, began a sit-in outside the British Foreign Affairs Office to demand Britain help secure the release of Allah, who, like them, has British citizenship. During a recent web event hosted by The Intercept, Mona Saif read a letter that Allah had sent from prison. The first idea in the letter was that the global West and North will not do anything that involves a sacrifice of prosperity or competitive advantage nor will they gamble with their political institutional stability. This isn't just because of the greed of big capitalists, but because of the composition of their societies. Decision makers know this. They accept it and they reproduce it. The only actions they can take are actions that are potentially profitable, like the dream of green economy, or that tap into technical solutions that don't require social change. The last part of the letter said that we Africans, mainly Africans because the Arabs at this juncture will be bogged down with the petroleum state's efforts to maximize their economic gains and translate them into ever more extreme strategic adventures for fear of the consequences of the shift away from fossil fuels, i.e. for fear of having to face the realities of the desert without petrodollars. We Africans, well, we don't have any real impact. We're not the cause of the disaster. We have no leverage. We have no leverage over the countries that are the cause. We don't have the way to propose solutions, nor, sadly, the institutions necessary to protect our continent and societies from the looming catastrophes. Again, that was Mona Saif reading a letter from her imprisoned brother, Ala Abdel Fattah. We're joined now by Ala's sister, Saneh who joins us from London, where she and Mona have been conducting a sit-in in front of the British Foreign Affairs Office. We're also joined by Naomi Klein, senior contributing writer at The Intercept and University of British Columbia professor of climate justice. Her new piece is published by The Intercept and The Guardian, headlined Greenwashing a Police State, The Truth Behind Egypt's COP27 Masquerade. But we're going to Sana first in London. Thank you for walking over to the studio as Mona holds down the sit-in fort, so to speak, um, in front of the Foreign Affairs Office. Sana, talk about why you've begun this protest. Hi, Amy. Thank you. Uh, I began it uh, uh, because I continued 200 days of Portugal hunger strike, and I'm really worried that. We don't have much time left, but also because uh, in 20 days, well now 17 days, 
our government here will be sending uh, uh, a delegation to COP, to the UN Climate Conference, and I'm really worried about uh, if they just go and engage diplomacy as usual, that uh, the Egyptian authorities will take this as a green light to let Alaa die. And so I want to put pressure on the foreign office to, so, they, so that they put Alaa on, on high up on their agenda uh, on their trip to COP. Now, I should say, Sana, you yourself were in prison for over three years. Now you're out and have just led a campaign. Um, we're recently in the United States where we interviewed. You've been speaking with many Congress members now in London. Talk, talk why Britain uh, is so important for your brother's release. Talk about all of your citizenship. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> were, du were dual nationals, were Egyptian and British, and so the British government um, is basically negotiating on our uh, on, a, on our behalf, on the family's behalf. There has been precedence before with uh, with the French, with the Americans, uh, political prisoners in Egypt, that uh, their gov their other government would negotiate their release and they would be like uh, extradited, sent to, deported to their their other country of residence. Um, technically as criminals, but, also, but of course when they go to the other country they're not regarded as criminals. Uh, and that's what we're pushing the British government to do, to negotiate for Alex's release, to, to basically say we want our citizen. Um, what's happening is that the Egyptian authorities are very uh, uh, reluctant and they're not even allowing the British uh, embassy to visit Alex in prison, they're not allowing them consular access. And now they're just... <coughs> Bluntly saying that uh, we, we don't acknowledge the Alex British citizenship because he hasn't, uh, like, he didn't take the Egyptian authorities' permission to apply for a British citizenship. So um, the Egyptian authorities are escalating and the British are not, are not pushing back. And what does this uh, change of prime minister mean for you? I mean, I assume that people are racing past you up and down the stairs of the Brit British Foreign Office, uh, not covering you, but covering what's going on with Liz Truss resigning. What role did they play in granting him citizenship? And what does this mean? Is this a setback or will it help? The people I'm, I'm, I'm sitting to be a reminder for are actually civil servants, so my sitting still is valid. But of course, the instability, uh, um, and it's been since also like the last days of Boris, the instability makes the Egyptian authorities kind of don't take you as seriously. Um, um, what happened to the British pound was like in negotiations, in IMF negotiations, uh, the, uh, we heard that the Egyptian officials were saying like uh, we're making fun of the British pound. So it doesn't help Britain's image uh, in the world in general. But, uh, but the people I'm trying to put pressure on are still in office and... Uh, and they're mainly the civil servants who prepare the paperwork and who give the advice for whoever will be minister. And so it's still valid. And members of parliament like David Lamy have joined you um, at your sit-in. Now, I wanted to ask about Allah's health. 200 days on hunger strike and where he's being held. How is he? Mm, so Allah... Um, Ale has been living on 100 calories a day, so 
his body took time, uh, 100 kinds of liquid, um, basically uh, honey uh, on his uh, tea or uh, skimmed milk. So the degradation, like it, it was slow. But uh, last I saw him was in August and he already looked very weak. My mom saw him recently because she's in Cairo. Um, he, she said he basically looks like a, he's a, he looks like a skeleton. He looks like skin on bones. His mind is still alert. He's um, he, he feels better than he looks, and he says that he <clears throat> he thinks he can endure more. But he looks really scary, and I, we're not sure how much how much time is left. We're not sure his body can take uh, how much longer and um, the prison authority, the, like the prison administration will not acknowledge Alec's hunger strike so they don't <clears throat> they don't do any medical checkups or any of that. They even sent like a fraudulent medical report to the British Embassy in July uh, dated uh, uh, on a date where Alec wasn't checked and, uh, and so I'm, I'm really worried that when, because it's inevitably sooner or later it will happen and it's probably very soon when Alec's body collapses. I'm not sure if if they will act uh, urgently. Um, but the, the thing that uh, I always remind myself of and uh, to call myself is that there is a camera 24-7 in Alec's cell. Of course, that's a bad thing for any normal inmate, but in our case, um, this should mean that Alec is under supervision. But yeah, the situation is desperate. Sana, I want to bring in Naomi Klein. Um, Naomi Klein is senior contributing writer at The Intercept, professor of climate justice at the University of British Columbia. Naomi, you wrote a piece in The Intercept and The Guardian, Greenwashing a Police State, the Truth Behind Egypt's COP27 Masquerade. You point out that for the tens of thousands of people that will be at the climate summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Democracy Now!, of course, will be covering it and will be there. Um, that number may well be less than the number of political prisoners prisoners in uh, Egypt's jails. Can you talk more about this? Yeah. Hi, Amy. Good to be with you. And hi, Sana. Um, I I uh, I think that number is really important because you hear these figures thrown around, and it's hard to wrap your head around it. But as you know, Amy, from covering cops now for 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 more than a decade. Um, they really are kind of like a city within a city. Uh, they're huge. They're, there's going to be around uh, more than 35,000 uh, um, delegates. And this is a combination of government negotiators and activists and NGOs, envoys of all kinds, and a few world leaders mixed in, um, you know, environment ministers the world over. Uh, so it will just be very, very large. Um, but that will be about half the number of estimated political prisoners in Egypt, which is estimated to be around 60,000. Um, you know, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty groups that are following this will be quick to say that that, that because of uh, the total lack of transparency, it's very, very hard to know whether it, it could, could be many, many more. Um, so this is the political context. So the, the pieces that, that you mentioned are, I'm arguing that this really crosses a new red line. Um, there's often repression during cops. There's often arrests. But the stakes of those arrests are completely different in Egypt. Um, but, but more than that, this is a country 
the most repressive regime in modern Egyptian history that is at active war with the very idea of civil society. And civil society is a key partner, is a key um, element in these climate summits. It's not like holding the Olympics or the World Cup. I mean, this activism, um, research, uh, freedom of speech, it, it's absolutely integral to the negotiations themselves. Um, and there's going to be this extraordinary cognitive dissonance when people go to Egypt in it's less than two weeks now, um, because there'll be a sort of a show that's go, going on in Sharm el-Sheikh. There will be some members of Egyptian civil society. There will be youth leaders. There will be people uh, you know, holding signs and, and, and seemingly free to say things. Um, but it will be extremely kind of scripted and constrained um, because the Egyptian groups that have been allowed into that space, they have overwhelmingly been vetted by the Egyptian government. And according to Human Rights Watch's uh, research, there are certain kinds of environmental issues that are considered um, sort of welcome is the word that they use topics. And that those are things like recycling, um, picking up litter, uh, um, uh, advocating for solar panels, advocating for climate finance that would enrich this regime. But what is not welcome would be pointing out the enormous lucrative network of deals that the military itself is engaged in that are linked to fossil fuels, that are linked to um, destroying uh, remaining green space in cities like Cairo, uh, that, are that are building coal-powered cement plants and so on. None of that is welcome. And indeed, even just doing the research to say what is going on in Egypt could land you with a death sentence under the current regime. Uh, I was looking at a retweet of yours. You retweeted... Um Jillian Keegan, who said young voices need to be heard this morning, I met with Egyptian youth climate leaders, amazing people with inspiring ideas. At COP27, we must remember the energy and passion of young people and ensure it drives us forward. And you retweeted uh, it with this comment. This is exactly the greenwash, rightswash LCC wants out of COP27 while thousands of young activists suffer in the torture chambers. What an absolute disgrace. Hashtag free Allah. Talk more about this and the connection of the issue of human rights to climate activism and who won't be at the summit, not because they're thousands of miles away. That's another issue. But Egyptian activists. Sure. Um, and Sanat can speak about this um, much better than I. But th that was that that was a, a British. Uh, um, uh, um, I believe she, she's the envoy for Africa. Under, I don't know what her position is today, because, of course, the British government is in complete collapse. Um, and, and I didn't mean any disrespect to the young climate leaders who were having their picture taken with her. But this is the kind of photo op that is being staged by LCC. I think that young activists are being put in an absolutely untenable position inside Egypt and outside Egypt. Um, they didn't choose for this, for, the, for this summit to be in Egypt. That was a decision, and I think a terrible one, made by... Uh, the UNFCCC secretariat, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, um, you know, holding a COP, holding a, a, this huge summit, it's, it's a big economic boon for a country. It's a big PR boon for a country. Uh, there should be conditions attached to it. There should be some minimum human rights criteria um, that for, for any country that is going to be hosting a COP. And obviously, Egypt would not meet that. Um, 
But so, so the irony, you know, Sana is with us. Sana, you know, Sana is a hero in her own right. Um, Sana, you know, what was one of the young people who took Tahrir Square in 2011 and were the toast of the world, right? I mean, uh, Democracy Now! was covering it wall to wall. So was CNN. So was The Daily Show. They were the great hope, the Arab Spring. And I was just 17 at the time. There were 14-year-olds in the square. And so the irony of this regime holding up their youth leaders and call in and saying that they're going to be speaking. And this is a direct quote from the COP website, they will, that they will be speaking truth to power in Egypt, while thousands upon thousands of, of young people are in LCC's torture chambers is just a kind of, it is Orwellian in, 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 in the dissonance. Um, in some of Elez's letters from, from prison, he talks about how some of his cellmates are just 17 themselves and have been in prison since they were kids. I wanted so to. So I think uh, just one thing I would add is that yesterday Greta Thunberg tweeted in solidarity um, with with Egypt's prisoners of conscience and 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 um, you know said use the hashtag free them all, um, which I think is really a very profound uh, act and statement of solidarity from one youth leader to others behind bars. I want to end with Sana, but first I want to play the words of Ala Abdel Fattah in his own words. All that's asked of us is that we insist on standing up for what's right. We're not required to be victorious in our stand for what's right. We're not required to be strong as we stand for what's right. We're not required to be rehearsed in our stand for what's right or to have a good plan or good organization. All that's asked of us is that we insist on standing up for what's right. That from your from Allah's father's memorial in 2014, um, briefly released to be able to attend. I know this is very painful for you, Sana, as you talk about your brother, more than 200 days on hunger strike. Um, your dad died in 2014. His son was born, is that right, when he was in prison earlier? Yeah. <clears throat> Um, Your final thoughts well, thank as you, you head for, back to the sit-in. Yeah, um, I, I wanted to stress on what Naomi was saying, that uh, it's really important to, to use this uh, event to shed light on the human rights situation in Egypt. The repercussions are going to happen anyway. That cannot be saved, unfortunately, but they can be less. Right now, the repercussions are starting to happen. Um, um, police forces have started, has, have started uh, around uh, in, in several neighborhoods in the city of Cairo, in the capital, have started uh, stopping. Uh, people in the street and checking their mobile phones to see like their uh, what what they write on Facebook. We we usually have this. Uh, they do this around the anniversary of the revolution, and that's a month where everybody who was part of the revolution would wipe their phones, would uh, stay <coughs> uh, in a different address. Um, everybody believes that uh, this uh, <laughs> this oppressive technique has started early uh, this year because co COP is happening in Egypt. So I I just want to urge anybody going uh, uh, to keep that in mind, that people in Egypt are going to pay a very heavy price for that event. And so it's really important to be critical and it's really important to speak up. And I'm really thankful to everybody doing that, like Naomi and Greta, uh, because 
first, it could ease the repercussions. Secondly, while we face those repercussions, uh, we, we should at least feel the warmth of solidarity. And as uh, collectively, all of us around the planet, the, this we could create... It could be a good lesson learned for the future uh, climate conferences that, uh, that that there is a uh, there are requirements for the host country so that uh, the next years there are no other countries that are basically sacrifice zones. Um, the next year COP will be in UAE, which will be a much bigger challenge. So uh, yeah, um, it's really important to shed light on the human rights situation in Egypt now. Well, Sana Saif, I want to thank you so much for being with us. You're incredibly brave. You yourself have been in prison for more than three years, have also been on hunger strikes at 17. As Naomi was saying, you were out in Tahrir Square giving out your high school newspaper, um, opposing um, uh, the regime, uh, also one of the editors of uh, the Oscar-nominated film The Square about Tahrir. Sana Saif joining us from London, where she and her sister Mona are leading um, a sit-in for her brother's release on hunger strike for more than 200 days, their mother in Egypt, because they always have one family member there to be near Allah, though he is in prison. And Naomi Klein, thanks so much for joining us from British Columbia, senior contributing writer at The Intercept, professor of climate justice at the University of British Columbia. Naomi wrote the foreword to uh, Allah's book that was just recently released, You Have Not Yet Been Defeated. And we will link, Naomi, to your Guardian Intercept piece, Greenwashing a Police State, the Truth Behind Egypt's COP27 Masquerade. Next up, we go to Florida to speak with law professor Kimberly Crenshaw and civil rights attorney Barbara Arnwine, who are on a 26-city tour to increase voter registration and turnout ahead of the midterm elections. Stay with us. I'm leaving. Don't nobody worry, I'll be doing my damn thing. Quick, fast, in a hurry, dream weaving. Keeping me and my team even. Shifting time zones, trying to see the seven seas and everything in between. We heavy and we heavenly, so we love whatever we see. From the banks of the Mississippi to the shores of Tripoli, we do more tours and wage wars. I'm swimming and women and living without limit. My penmanship got me on a trip spinning around the world. Make Your Move by Bay Area's Hieroglyphics. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The midterm elections less than three weeks away will determine the balance of power in Congress, and black voters could play a key role. Black voters helped Democrats flip two Senate seats that gave them control of the Senate in Georgia's 2020 special runoff election. Democratic Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock of Georgia now faces Republican challenger Herschel Walker. This comes as Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp is fighting for re-election against Democrat and voting rights advocate Stacey Abrams in a rematch after he signed into law new restrictions that disproportionately disenfranchise voters of color. 
Um, it was one of many voter suppression efforts in Republican-led states. In Florida, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis's election police unit—that's right, he has set up an election police unit—has arrested people for voting. Florida law allows formerly incarcerated people to vote unless they were convicted of murder or felony sex offenses. Those arrested say Florida officials encouraged them to vote and didn't know about the exclusion. This is police body cam footage of Tampa resident Tony Patterson and his arresting officer recently obtained by the Tampa Bay Times. Apparently, I, I guess you have a warrant? For what? I'm not it's sure. for voter stuff, man. For voters. It's, it's what it is. It, I think the agents with FDLE talked to you last week about some voter fraud, voter stuff, when you weren't supposed to be voting, maybe. This is crazy, man. Y'all put me in jail for something I didn't know nothing about. Why would y'all let me vote if I wasn't, uh, I wasn't able to vote? For more, we're joined by two guests who are on a 26-city ARC of Voter Justice bus tour. They're joining us from Jacksonville, Florida, uh, at one of their tour stops. Barbara Arnwine is city is a civil rights lawyer, president of the Transformative Justice Coalition, and Kimberly Crenshaw is distributing banned books en route as part of From Freedom Riders to Freedom Readers, the Books Unbanned Tour. She's also executive director of the uh, American— at the African-American Policy Forum, a professor of law at UCLA and Columbia University. We'll welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, Barbara Arnwine, your hashtag is 10 million more black votes. How are you doing this? Oh, we're doing it in two ways. One is we're registering new voters. There's something like 6 million unregistered African-American voters in this country. And we're also saying to those who are registered, 35 percent who don't vote, that you got to show up and show out every election. Don't only vote presidential. Vote in the midterms. It's so critical. Vote the whole ballot. Don't only focus on the top positions. But well, no matter what you do, vote. No matter what you do, make sure you're registered. No matter what you do, vote. And can you talk, Kimberly Crenshaw, about how you're linking these two issues, the banned book tour uh, from Freedom Riders to Freedom Readers, and why that's so critical when we're talking about voter turnout and voter registration? Well, Amy, it's it's no secret that our democracy is in crises. The efforts to suppress black voting, the efforts to gerrymander districts, this is all part of a democracy that's in deep trouble. But what a lot of people don't realize is that the same people who are trying to gerrymander our districts are trying to gerrymander our history. The same people who want to change the outcomes of elections want to change the story of, of us, the, the material, the books that tell the full story about America. So we've decided that because there is no daylight between uh, uh, racial justice and a fully multiracial democracy, we were going to join this tour to provide the information, the books that those who are anti-Democrats don't want us to know. So we're passing out 6,000 books titles that have been banned in many of the states that we're in, ranging from the autobiography of Ruby Bridges, the six-year-old who integrated schools in New Orleans, to classics like To 
Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye um, or Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me. People need to understand what is behind this effort to ban what they call critical race theory. What they're essentially doing is banning the telling of our history and its contemporary consequences. We think when voters know exactly what they're trying to do, they will show up. And as Barbara said, they will show out. <laughs> And so can you talk about the response? I mean, uh, you're right now actually in Jekyll Island, Georgia, headed to Jacksonville. Georgia is, to say the least, all eyes are on this state. When you have this race between um, Herschel Walker uh, and Reverend Raphael Warnock, Reverend Raphael Warnock just won uh, two years ago, but now will run for a full Senate term, um, this all all of the attention on this. Uh, can you talk, Barbara Arnwine, about the significance of this race and some of the other ones that you're tracking? Well, obviously, African-American voters are key to all these races because, and it's, you know, we're nonpartisan and we believe that if African-Americans vote, they'll vote correctly, because they're going to vote what's in the best interest, not only of their community, but the entire nation. That's one thing we know about African-American voters. They think broadly, especially African-American women voters, have a real sense of social justice for all. So it's really important to mobilize this block. And what we're seeing already in Georgia is an incredible, unprecedented, historic turnout of African-American voters. They are 37 percent of the current early voting percentages. That's a, an increase significantly from being 29 percent in the 2018 midterm elections. So African-Americans are hearing us. We've been going to communities that have the lowest voter turnout and saying your vote matters. Don't it doesn't matter if all the candidates don't come to see you because they don't consider you high propensity voters. We consider you the most important voters. Register, vote. So yesterday we did our votercade and we went through some of the poorest most depressed areas in Brunswick. You should have seen the people. This is like what we've been seeing everywhere. They came out. They were clapping. They were giving the power fist. They were yelling. They were screaming. They were so excited that somebody considered them important. Somebody was coming directly to them and saying, vote, it matters. It was just beautiful. That is the experience we've had in Richmond, where we were on motorcycles driving through the city uh, with the uh, Buffalo soldiers and, uh, you know, long six block long, uh, you know, motorcade. Uh, it's been amazing. When people see the John Lewis buses, they honk on the freeways at us. They honk as we roll because people get the message. They're so happy to see somebody saying vote in a positive way, not about cancer. Candidates, just about the fact that as Americans and as the fact that we care and love our democracy, that it demands that we participate, that we vote. Kimberly Crenshaw, you are in Georgia. That other key race is the rematch between the longtime voting rights activist Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp, the governor for the governorship of Georgia. Um, the significance of this race, and you're visiting these sites of white supremacist terror 
from the Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, um, to talk about the places that you have been. Yes, we 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 visited um, a Wilmington, uh, which is uh, the site of a racial uh, coup uh, in 1898. And, and one of the reasons that was just so significant to in us, North Carolina. Uh, the African-American Policy Forum, uh, yes, uh, w- was that you know when we had the January 6th attempted coup, there were a lot of pundits, including our, our president, who said, this is not who we are. And it is evidence of the fact that when our history has been erased, we don't know that we're heading in the same direction. In fact, violent coups are exactly who we've been. Um, but when we went to Wilmington and looked at the site where the coup began, where a newspaper was burned to the ground and countless numbers of African-Americans were killed and a duly elected biracial government was deposed, There's no marker there. There's no placard. There's no, this is what happened. And that same sentiment, that erasure of our history is what is behind these book bans and behind the effort uh, to challenge uh, the 1619 Project. It is, in fact, an effort to make racism unspeakable. And our position has been that when racism is unspeakable, then democracy, a full multiracial democracy is unachievable. There is no daylight between the two, even though when people think and talk about is our country going to the edge? Can it happen here? A lot of people say it can't, but that's just telling us that they don't realize that black history and American history are one and the same. It has happened here, and unless we understand its le- legacy and its implication today, it's on the way of happening here again, and that's what we cannot allow to happen. Talk about your plans in Florida and that video we played in the introduction, astounding story um, of what uh, the governor has done in having arrested, uh, with his election police arresting people who are attempting to vote. They said these uh, men who were in prison and came out that they can register and if they qualify, because they didn't know if they did because they had served time in jail, um, they will be allowed to vote. And then they were handcuffed and arrested for voting. Your response? Well, they were handcuffed and arrested for voting while they had in their hands their voting cards. Now, if you're sent a voting card by your county register, wouldn't you assume that that means you have the right to vote? So the fact that DeSantis, uh, you know, people here call him D. Satan, has decided that he wants to use the and play the race card by having mostly black. Look at who he's arresting. It's not just, you know, uh, whites, because more whites have been affected by these felony disenfranchisement laws than blacks, but he's mainly arresting black people, uh, that he's playing the race card because he wants to be president. It doesn't that say something ill 
about the, the concept of our democracy, the concept of who we are, that we want a we person have- who is using race because we it worked before, right, with Trump. So they're saying, OK, we'll do it again. We have to leave it there. But I want to thank you so much for being with us. Barbara Arnwine, civil rights lawyer with Transformative Justice Coalition and Kimberly Crenshaw, executive director of the African-American Policy Forum and professor of law at UCLA and Columbia University, speaking to us from Jekyll Island, Georgia. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much.